Chapter 6 of the Story of George Fox by Rufus Jones. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Richard Vogel. The Beginning of a New Era. Angry as he was at what was taking place in his home, Judge Fell was nevertheless a calm and sensible man. He knew and trusted his wife. He would not condemn her until he had heard her story. He was greatly offended, but he did not lose his head. As Margaret Fell says, he behaved moderately and wisely. She herself was in a desperate strait, for she felt sure that she must either displease her husband or disobey God and the truth. The judge was stern and quiet, and everybody could see in his hard and silent face that he did not like what had happened in his absence. James Naylor and Richard Farnsworth were in the hall at the time, and Mistress Fell asked them during the afternoon to come in and explain to her husband why they had come and what their religious faith was. Like the real man he was, Judge Fell listened quietly to them and seemed to understand their spirit. George Fox was expected that evening, and everything would depend on the impression which he would make upon the judge. At evening dinner, Margaret Fell began suddenly to quake and tremble, as the Quakers sometimes did in their meetings. The judge was struck with amazement as he beheld her, and knew not what to think, but was quiet and still. The children, too, were all altered in manner and behavior. They were all quiet and still and grown sober and could not play on their music. The poor judge hardly knew his own home, and he sat and wondered. A little later, George himself arrived. Mistress Fell came quietly to the parlor where the perplexed judge was sitting alone and asked if George Fox might come in and talk with him. Judge Fell said yes. George came in with his hat on his head and without paying any of the customary compliments. He spoke almost at once of his mission in the world and told the judge simply and plainly the message which he preached everywhere. As he went on talking, the family and servants gathered into the parlor. James Naylor and Richard Farnsworth came in and George preached on. Very excellently, Margaret Fell's account says, as ever I heard him. He opened Christ's and the Apostles' practices which they were in in their day, and he opened the night of apostasy since the Apostles' days, and laid open the priests and their practices in the apostasy, and if all England had been there, I thought, they could not have denied the truth of those things. It was a great crisis in Fox's life and very much depended on the decision which the prominent judge before him should give. He was used to hearing important cases and of going straight to the central point, so now he did not allow the stories he had heard to influence him. He made nothing of the lack of formal compliments. He calmly weighed the words of the man speaking in his parlor, and he believed that they were true. He said little, he went to bed very quiet, but he clearly saw the truth. The next morning, Priest Lampett came and started a counteroffensive. 
but it was no use. It was too late. My husband, Margaret says, had seen so much the night before that the priest got little entrance upon him. A little later, Judge Fell, of his own accord, offered the use of the hall as a meeting place for friends, and though he himself never joined them, he appreciated their message. He showed them much kindness. He opposed those who persecuted them, and he would often sit quietly in his own room, adjoining the large meeting room of the hall, with his door ajar, and listening to the Quaker preaching. And so, until his death a few years later, the old judge and parliamentarian gave the new movement his respect and blessing, though he felt himself too old to change his ways and religious habits. And he let his wife and daughters have full liberty of worship as their hearts prompted them. While the cause of Fox was gaining this powerful support, and he was adding so many important persons to his newborn society, his opponents were more than ever resolved to crush him and stop his influence. Justice Sawry, the first stirrer up of cruel persecution in the North, was the leader of the opposition forces in Westmoreland, and he and others inflamed the mob element to make Fox's work in that district henceforth impossible. The first collision of forces came at Alverston, where Fox, with the word of God in his soul, like a fire and a hammer, tried to preach again on a lecture day. Justice Sawry roused the people to a furious rage and set them on the preacher. Fox says, They fell on me in the steeple house, knocked me down, kicked me, and trampled upon me. After much uproar and conflict between those who opposed Fox, and those who sympathized with him, he was dragged to the common moss side, and there beaten with staves and hedge stakes, and with holm and holly bushes, until unconscious he fell down upon the wet common. When I recovered, the journal says, and saw myself lying in a watery common, and the people standing about me, I lay still a little while. The power of the Lord sprang through me, and the eternal refreshings refreshed me, so that I stood up again in the strengthening power of the eternal God, and stretching out my arms amongst them, I said with a loud voice, Strike me again. Here my arms, my head, and my cheeks. There was in the company, the graphic account continues, a mason, a professor, but a rude fellow. He, with his walking rule staff, gave me a blow with all his might, just over the back of my hand, as it was stretched out, with which blow my hand was so bruised and my arm so benumbed that I could not draw it unto me again, so that some of the people cried out, He has spoiled his hand forever, having the use of it any more. But I looked at it in the love of God, for I was in the love of God to them all, that had persecuted me. And after a while, the Lord's power sprang through me again and through my hand and arm, so that in a moment I recovered strength in my hand and arm in the sight of them all. Thereupon, the unconquered and fearless man was moved to the Lord to go back to Alverston and walk through the marketplace where many people were gathered. 
As he was going through the marketplace, a soldier, belted and armed, met him and said with admiration, Sir, I see you are a man, and I am ashamed and grieved that you should be so abused. If I can do anything to assist you, let me know. Fox quietly told his unknown soldier friend that the Lord's power was over all and that he needed no sword. That night, when Fox got back to Swarthmore Hall, his body and arms were yellow, black, and blue with blows and bruises. But his spirit was triumphant. A still more fierce and brutal assault was made upon him two weeks later at Walney, a little island which skirts the western coast of Furness. He went to Walney with James Naylor and had had a meeting in the town of Cocken on the island. A man came into the meeting with a cocked pistol and asked for George Fox. The people ran away in great fear, but Fox stepped up to the man without fear of the pistol. The man aimed the pistol at Fox and snapped the trigger, but the pistol would not go off. The people tried to seize the man to prevent him from doing mischief, but Fox was moved in the Lord's power to speak to him, which struck such a fear into his soul that he trembled and went and hid himself away. But the next morning in another part of the island, a mob of 40 men with staves, clubs, and fishing poles fell upon Fox, beating him and pushing him toward the sea, aiming apparently to drown him, which they almost did. It seems that the people all believed that Fox had bewitched James Lancaster, one of their townsmen who was convinced by Fox's preaching and had become a Quaker. Full of rage and led on by Lancaster's wife, they rushed at the gentle Fox, knocked him down, stunned him, and rained volleys of stones upon him. When he came back to consciousness, he saw James Lancaster shielding him with his own body while Lancaster's wife was trying to dash stones at his face. Lancaster succeeded in getting his wounded friend into a boat and so rescuing him from the frantic mob which stoned the boat until it was out beyond their range. Meantime, they discovered James Naylor, who was left behind, and they fell upon him, crying, Kill him! Kill him! Naylor also had a narrow escape but eventually managed to get off with only heavy bruises. When Fox and Lancaster landed from their boat across the channel on the mainland, another crowd came at them with pitchforks, flails, and staves, crying, Kill him! Knock him on the head! Bring the cart and carry him away to the churchyard! He fortunately got away from the rabble alive, though covered with bruises and besmeared all over with miry dirt, and so sore that the next day he was unable to ride on the horse which Margaret fell, hearing of his experience, sent to fetch him back to Swarthmore Hall. Not having killed him by mob violence, and not being able by persecution to stop the impetus of his movement, his opponents now tried to get him imprisoned on the charge that he had claimed to be divine and equal with God. A court warrant was issued against him, while Judge Fell was absent on business. But when Judge Fell returned, the officials were afraid to carry it out, and so did not serve it on Fox. 
He, however, rode to the city of Lancaster at the time of the court sessions to defend himself. Judge Fell, loyal to his guest, went with him and stood by him like the brave man he was. Fox not only cleared himself of the charges in the unserved warrant, but he was given a public opportunity in the courtroom to declare his message, which he did in such a way that many prominent persons in Lancaster were convinced by it. This affair at the Sessions called forth a famous little book from Fox's pen, one of the first of many such which he called Saul's Errand to Damascus, with his packet of letters from the high priest against the disciples of the Lord. Another attempt was made at the January session of the court in Lancaster to try Fox on a similar charge, but Colonel West, the clerk of the Assize, refused to issue the warrant and told the judge that he was ready to offer up his estate and even his body for Fox, whom he believed to be innocent. Fox, hearing that he might be summoned, went straight to Lancaster to confront his adversaries, but the Lord's power was over all and gave dominion. For many weeks following, during the spring of 1653, with his headquarters at Swarthmore Hall, he labored in Westmoreland, Cumberland, Lancashire, and the western part of Yorkshire, with the usual experiences of success and fierce persecution. Sitting one day in April at Swarthmore Hall, when Judge Fell and Justice Gervais Benson were discussing the news and talking of events in Parliament, of which Judge Fell was probably still a member, Fox was suddenly moved to tell them that before that day, two weeks, the Parliament should be broken up and the Speaker plucked out of his chair. Two weeks passed, and Justice Benson once more visited Swarthmore, this time with the news that Oliver Cromwell had expelled the rump, as it was called, of the long Parliament, and had plucked the Speaker out of his chair. George, I see, he told Dudsfell, is a true prophet. It was not, however, because he foresaw an occasional event that George Fox was a prophet. It was rather because he saw, more clearly than most did, the truth about man's soul and the real spiritual nature of religion, and because he was able, through sacrifice and suffering, to make others see, to receive and go with a message and to have a word from the Lord as the prophets and apostles had and did, and as I had done, he told the priests who came to discuss with him at Swarthmore, was the real mark of living religion. End of chapter 6